right, everyone. Welcome back to another amazing episode here at the Crypto 101 podcast. It is I, your host, Pizza Mind, and I am joined today by Les Borsai, the co-founder of Wave Financial. Les, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you as well. Um, We are now in 2023. People have been telling me Happy New Year as if it's something happy to be about. Um, I feel more like we should be saying congratulations for surviving. Congratulations for surviving. Yeah, you too. Uh, How are you feeling going into 2023? I feel fine. You know, the thing about it is, is when we started Wave in 2018, we started it right into a bear market. So we're used to this. Um, I think, you know, it's like uh, that old David Copperfield quote, you know, the hardest steel goes through the hottest flame. Uh, We were prepared for this when we started the company and, you know, watching all of the implosions, we, you know, didn't really expect that. Um, nor did we expect that we were competitive with a lot of the guys that exploded. You know, we, we couldn't compete. Obviously, they were doing lots of things they shouldn't be doing to get those incredible rates. And we just didn't do any of that. So we feel optimistic. You know, now we're the last man standing, last rat standing. So, yeah, funny how uh, that works. Usually the people that get ahead in life are the ones that are doing things they aren't supposed to do. Um but our industry should be better than that, and it will be better than that going forward. But before we jump into the state of the industry, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell our listeners you know, who you are, how you got into crypto, what's your background, and what are your passions? Boy, those are a lot of questions. I could probably talk about myself for the whole session just on those questions. Go for it. It makes my job um, easy. You know, <laughs> So I was a guy who was born in Gardena, which is in Los Angeles, and at a pretty young I age. I know where that's at. I used to work there in the countertop industry where you got all those factories up and down Gardena Boulevard there. I hate yeah, that I mean, town. That, that actually makes a lot of sense because my dad, you know, came over from Hungary in 56 and he had a machine shop in Gardena. Um, and back then it was, you know, things like countertops and aerospace and all of that kind of thing. Um, but he moved, moved us to Orange County. I was relatively young and, um, you know, grew up um, with – Disneyland is a backdrop in Anaheim, um, which always, I think, kind of warped my thinking. And really, you know, family was, was, was a tricky thing. And I left home when I was 16 um, and never really looked back. Um, from there, I needed to make a living. So long story short, I started throwing parties um, and it became the first incarnation of the rave scene. And this was in about 1988, 86 to 88, I guess. Um, and that just kind of rolled into working at different kinds of music initiatives. I, mean, I became a concert promoter straight after that with one of the biggest concert promotion companies in Los Angeles. Um, and that revolved around business models. It was a lot you know, less expensive to get a DJ than it was to hire a band, especially with their existing models. And I, and I did that for a long time. Um, and then I went to a record company and headed up tour marketing. And then I went to the Silicon Valley and started working on some technology initiatives and then I came back and managed artists um, and then worked on technology again, you know, when the iPhone launched its first apps. And, um, you know, in 2013, uh, I was convinced I had missed Bitcoin, you know, at 200 bucks a token or whatever it was, coin. And I became an advisor for Ripple in 2013 and then invested in the Ethereum presale in 14. Um, got my first NFTs in 2017 and in 2018 with David Seymour, we formed Wave Financial, um, which is, you know, really the story of of me, um, do something you know nothing about, which seems to be the thing I'm always interested in. Um, so that, that's really how the, how 
my interest in crypto and the company started, but even like at a more kind of core level, it was about, you know, music really kind of instilled this thinking, you know, how do you get early? How do you do something that's authentic? How do you, you know, understand the, the crowd that supports that authenticity? And in those early days of crypto, I mean, Reddit was a place you could live and breathe and, and learn a lot. Um, and I always just kind of loved that. And I just kind of continued to do what I always do, but it wasn't music. It was digital currencies this time. So what was it about crypto that really attracted you to it? Was it the wealth, uh, gaining part of it? Was it the attitude of the counterculture at that time? Was it, you know, the solutions of problems you saw in the world or what was it? I mean, I'd love to say it was, you know, crypto would change the world, but I think you have to go back further for me. Um, as a young guy, I was really influenced by, you know, almost this, this hacker culture. You know, I remember things like phone phishing, getting free phone calls on dial phones and stuff. And, you know, there were a lot of guys, you know, that, that emerged out of that time. And, you know, I remember trying to learn basic and I just knew I'd never be a coder. It's just too fucking meticulous. Um, but I love the, the ethos of it. And, you know, like Tim May and Eric Hughes, you know, writing the manifesto, uh, there's like this connection for me with all of that. Um, so it wasn't about changing the world necessarily, although I knew it could. Um, sure, I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, generating wealth wasn't interesting. Um, it was all of the above, everything you just mentioned. There was, there was a level of interest and the community and the collaboration and, and how the world could change. Yeah. You know, in those ways, it may not have been charitable, you know, with the way I thought about things back then, but it was just interesting. We've seen and talked to a lot of guys who've been in Bitcoin just as long as you have. And a lot of not, but not all, but a lot of them are very, very jaded and somewhere along the way, their minds got closed to new opportunities, as hypocritical as that may seem. But you're not one of those guys. You still no. are very interested in all this emerging stuff that's coming out in NFTs and Web3 and all this other stuff. What do you think closed off the minds of other people and what allowed you to continue staying bright eyed and positive? Well, I mean, I think the people you're talking about are usually you know, maximalists. Uh, you know, for whatever they really believe in. And I mean, look at this business, this industry, should I say, not business, you know, it, it's taken its lumps and continues to, and it's resilient and it sticks around. I mean, the only thing I think we can count on is that there's going to be change. And if we go back to 17, ICOs were a thing, you know, if we look at NFTs, the the craze of NFTs, and I, I think it's really a mistake to, to, connect to things in, in that way. And I'll use NFTs as an example. You know, you will hear from people, NFTs are just JPEGs. Why do they have so much value? And there's a whole bunch of reasons they have a whole bunch of value and, and that'll change. You know, I, I take a look at everything, you know, as emerging technology and how is that technology going to change and how's that technology going to be applied? Um, when iPhone apps came out, they were one thing and they became something else over time. But this is even kind of more interesting because now we can look at NFTs, not just as collectibles, but things that you can use in the metaverse or you can use in gaming and they'll become intricate parts of what those ecosystems look like, or maybe they'll just be used for discovery. So I think the reason I'm not jaded is because I'm trying to constantly learn about what's coming next. And, and that 
continues to keep me interested. And, and it's really also about this lesson that I had in the music business. You know, when Sean Fanning and Sean Parker created Napster, I, I really watched these arrogant companies um, push back and say, you know, IP, you know, is our defense mechanism here. It's our, you know, litigation. And it's like, that's fucking bullshit. Because if they would have just embraced youth and helped store it and guide it in a way. Well, we would have had Spotify a lot quicker than a decade. Um, and I just hate that kind of shit. So when I look at this generation of creators and the creator economy that's going to merge with Web3, it's really amazing. So that's why I'm just still curious. Uh, that's a great answer. You know, I think anyone who's still open-minded and learning uh, can see the potential here. And it's a shame that some people are really going to miss many, many more boats just because they found one raft. Um, there's really a lot to like that's being built in this industry. And you mentioned music, you know, quite a bit. What do you think the real benefit of crypto and blockchain can be to the music industry? You know, we've seen so many artists now release their own music and keep, you know, damn near a hundred percent of the revenue but it still seems like royalty tracking through secondary marketplaces and other things are not quite there yet. What, but what are, what are some of the projects uh, that deal with that stuff that we should be paying attention to? Well, I mean, I'll answer the first part of that question. I don't follow the music stuff because it's just such a broken business in the first place. And I mean, that sounds surprising. I did a couple of things in music, you know, and crypto. Um, there was this game, Avogache was, one of the first kind of DeFi games, which I loved because it was almost like punk rock banking and gaming in a weird way. And I ended up putting a little pump in that game and, and I wanted to break the model of how we did that. Um, so we didn't do this typical pay an artist in advance, um, which I hate. But I mean, going back to, to music, you know, music is complicated. When you take a look at the way the system works today, whether it's performance royalties or synchronization, licensing, you know, you have the publisher side, the writer side, and the master recording itself. And, and all, you know, a single song can have many, many owners, and those owners all have a say in some, the way something is used or not used. And, you know, thank God that this generation doesn't give a shit about legacy artists, um, because now we can change the way that looks. So when we take a look at NFTs and, and what they bring to the equation of rights, well, if I'm an owner of an NFT, um, I can exploit those rights. That's something that these businesses will never understand. Um, Creative Commons tried to do stuff in a similar fashion where it's not owner exploited, so anyone can use it. And, and that's what the ethos of Web3 is. It's about your privacy. It's about data. It's about digital currencies. It's about how rights are going to be different. And, and I think the and, you know, record companies and publishers are going to have a real hard time wrapping their head around this. Um, you know, I built a platform, I don't talk about this much, that got rights for pre-cleared content from the record companies and publishers. And the idea was that instead of having to call a record company through natural selection, if you're lucky enough to get through and be able to license a song for a use, um, you could just do pre-cleared content and it never worked because record companies won't support it. So it was the same old kind of thing where if it's not driven by the people that, 
you know, have the content, then you're never going to build a business on the back of these guys, not to mention that they take so much for you to do a business. If you take a look at the app businesses or any other digital businesses, you know, to go into partnership with a record company or a publisher, it's bullshit. You know, you end up giving away such a big part of the profit. And it's why, you know, Spotify could be the most successful thing in the world that saved the record businesses because they took all the money, you know, and, and we hear a lot about penny rates and, you know, what artists don't get paid, but we don't hear a lot about, you know, the equity components and how they were distributed. So like all of that to me is just bullshit. That's why when I look at this generation and and they don't care about legacy and they're going to collaborate and they're going to give rights away, you're going to have a more robust way to earn ultimately. Yeah. One of my favorite pro wrestlers has to use a different theme song now because the one that he's most famous for is from a band called Europe from way back in the eighties. And they want to charge a million dollars for him to use that song. Now that it's being broadcast on TV. Like, I don't even know if they ever made a million dollars in their entire career, uh, Well, but it's pro wrestling. It's like not many, there's not millions of dollars floating around over there. So, I mean, that's what shows ridiculous. you how broken the system is. And, and, you know, there's companies like killer tracks and a bunch of these guys that have done sound alikes, not just for karaoke, but for film and television, because when the rights don't clear, you know, you use another master. And, you know, in those cases where the writers are different or the publishing companies want to do the deal, you just use a different master in those. And these are industries that were built around the ineffectiveness of how that part of the business works. It's just stupid, you know, and, like, I don't want to be part of something that makes no sense. And and I just believe that, like, if you're building businesses, you want to build them to win with your partners, not to lose. And if my partner, like a record company, is looking at me um, as the payday, then they're the fucking wrong partner. Like, I'm not the payday. Build something that's the payday. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it looks like you've done that through Wave Financial, and you've got several different index funds and things going on over there. Walk us through what Wave Financial offers to the average consumer. Well, thank God Dave Seamer, you know, who came from finance, could, uh, you know, usher me along uh, while I tried to learn as well. You know, when we started the company, it, you know, like anything else, you, you have an idea and you just kind of run with it. Um, you know, Wave Financial is three things. It's, it's a series of venture funds. We, you know, invest seed stage, um, you know, investments in, in at that time kind of just blockchain and digital currency companies. We have an NFT metaverse fund that we deploy in upcoming technologies. And, and we have an ecosystem fund that we do called C um, fund for Cardano. Um, we're pretty close with those guys and really like what they do. Um, the other part of the business is we deal with crypto cor corporates and high net worths um, to try to generate yield on the treasury that they hold. And then we create fun products like you, pointed out. And that can be anything from an index fund to something more complicated in DeFi. So, you know, we really kind of have prided ourselves as being experts in the space, but being compliant from day one. When we started the company, we were, you know, an RIA with California and then with the SEC. So everything we do, you know, we've made sure that it's appropriate. And, you know, I'm not really the brightest guy in the world, but I'm pretty sure I can't take my customers' funds and go gamble with them. And I think that's the problem that we've seen in, in the business is, you know, this innovation is a funny thing. A younger generation can be really, really innovative. But when you get into being innovative in finance, you have to be a little more careful. You can't just say, fuck it, I'm going to go do shit. And I think that's what we're seeing with, with all these guys that are imploding and they're so closely tied together. 
You know, they were all doing the same thing because they were competing against each other and they wanted to create greater returns. And they were so tied to each other that they just all imploded. And we missed everything. Well, we didn't miss it. We missed it by design, you know, because it's not that hard to ask questions. And I think a lot of these younger guys who were running these companies didn't ask questions, didn't care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So. Yeah, well said. Um, I've had the fortune of meeting some people from the Cardano Foundation in my travels last year, uh, including Jeremy Furster, the global head of uh, growth over there. Uh, very, very passionate guy. You'll be hard-pressed to find a community that's more passionate than the Cardano community. Why do you think that is? If you look at Cardano's website right now for the first time and you go through their roadmap, your brain kind of melts as you can't barely even understand what you're reading, even if you're a seasoned crypto vet as opposed to someone new. You just know that there's a lot of smart people working really hard over here. And it, it's, it just it's sucks Charles. you in. Yeah, it's Charles. You know, and, and the distinction is we don't really work very closely with the foundation. We work pretty closely with IOG, you know, which is the other side. But, you know, I had a call today and I'm not very technically proficient, but I wanted to know more about Haskell, for instance, and we're getting into a dangerous area. Like, it's not going to go much past this because my understanding is capped. But, you know, I got on the phone with Charles and just listening to the way he explained it and, you know, what the efficiencies were. It, it's something that the general public doesn't know. It's all under the hood. And it just makes so much sense when someone takes the time. And the, the reason I was always interested in what Charles had to say is I remember um, back I was, you know, in bed or something, looking at a YouTube video, and Charles was, this is what I do. Like, this is my fucking life. I'm watching YouTube videos about math. Um, and he was explaining, you know, what Cardano was. And this was early. This was like pre, I mean, I don't remember what year it was. It, it was probably 2016 or 17. And it was just so easy to digest when he explained it. And if you look at a lot of the other, you know, kind of teams out there, I think there are very few that that have the leadership and the vision and kind of the background that he has. I mean, he was on the Ethereum team. Um, and, you know, I just think it it's 
a little bit underrated with what he's accomplished. Um, there's other great guys out there too and other great companies. You know, we're not, Wave definitely, you know, looks at lots of companies and, you know, Filecoin and Arbitrum and, you know, all these guys out there building really innovative things. But I, I just think, you know, the relationship has kind of blossomed with Cardano. So we, we really embrace it and are grateful for it. Yeah. I remember having Charles Hoskinson on our podcast uh, last year, I think it was. Uh, one of my favorite guests for sure. We didn't even talk much about crypto or Cardano. We picked his brain on philosophy and time management and business skills, uh, just a wealth of information of all kinds of things. So it was really fascinating. If you guys haven't heard that episode, go back in the archives uh, a little ways. It's definitely worth the listen. He, 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 um, he just loves all of that stuff. I mean, he took me to um, Egypt recently, which I, I don't want to leave my house, you know, and I get a call. I get a call from him about going on safari in Africa, then going to Egypt. I'm like, no, I don't want to fucking do it. I don't want to leave the house. And right. um, somehow I, you know, went and, it, and it's just remarkable, like how deep he goes in everything, you know, um, and just understanding granularly, like the whole thing. It's like, I never liked school much. You know, I, as a matter of fact, I quit school at 16, just about the time I moved out. And, you know, I, I guess the, the answer was like, if someone can show you by experiencing, it's a little bit different, you know, in terms of the education that you can derive out of it. Yeah. I remember, um, I was interviewing the founder of Verus protocol, Michael, I forget how to pronounce his last name. So I don't want to butcher it. But before the interview started, we were talking about keto diets and he yeah. went on for like a half an hour explaining every last little secretion and body reaction and chemical reaction and organ response to this whole process through every little phase as you go like week by week by week through it. And I was like, I don't even care what you're building after this. I, I want to support you. Like, you know what you're talking about on every level. It also helps that he's like, he looks 20 years younger than he actually is. So he, he must really understand health and physiology. It was mind boggling. And yeah, that's my favorite thing about this space is I get to talk to people way smarter and more experienced than me every day and just pick their brains on, the wealth of knowledge for things that our audience might be able to apply in their lives. That brings me to my next question, and that's starting a company and raising capital to fulfill your dream. Like You've already done this several times, but now doing this in this space, what are some words of wisdom that you would give to existing founders or would-be founders about raising money in a market environment like we're experiencing today? I mean, look, I think it's more complicated than that. And if you look at my history, you know, when I started my career, you know, borrowing warehouses and throwing raves and ultimately started making money, I had this really idealistic view of the world. And, you know, somewhere in the middle, when I got deep into the music business, I, I lost all that. And it really became about money. And it was gross. And I did it for a long time. Although I did still care for artists at the time. Um, and... You know, I mean, I guess in my life in particular, and we'll get to the advice piece, I've always just done what I've wanted to do at any cost. And sometimes that's been great. Sometimes it's been terrible. Um, as I got through the other side with digital currencies and, and was able to create a little bit of success, I think, again, I got back to that idealistic view of I just want to do things and learn and and not chase it. And I think the thing about raising money is, you know, people can sense desperation. 
and just build, do things that inspire you and, and do them for the right reasons. And then you will find the people that are meant to work with you and they'll help you. Um, and I think, and we've been guilty of this, you know, more often than not, you know, when you're just about to raise and, and trying to get the money in the door, it doesn't usually work. Um, and I think just that kind of staying the course and being focused to, to what you're actually trying to accomplish, you'll get there. And it may not be the way you envisioned it, but it doesn't really matter as long as you're, you're authentic about it. Um, and, and that's really the big shift for me. You know, a handful of years ago, I just would have done anything to get in with the right people or raise the right money, have whatever, you know, and it's like, fuck all that. Like just go be inspired and build things that are cool. It doesn't have to be about empire building. It just has to be about if you have a vision, you know, execute it. Yeah. One of the biggest uh, piece of advice is piece of advice is <laughs> pieces of advice that I ever got was from a wonderful lady named Patricia Auer. And she was basically saying, if you want to be a builder in this space, as you were saying, just go out and do it. And then just network with people who are already doing what you want to do and become part of that community. And eventually they'll ask you if you need funding or if they can be part of it. And at some point you're going to be saying, no, I don't want people handing me checks. I only want strategic investors who are actually going to work with me and help me. Uh, and you start turning down investors and money if you're doing things really the right way and really following your passion. I think VCs are a lot like uh, the hot chick in high school that can really sense, you know, if you've got the confidence and the goods to offer or if you're just, you know, walking up with your knees shaking uh, and they're going to say no. Well, I mean, even worse than that. I mean, with Wave, we were going to raise money and, and um, we've really raised very little. We never had to because we were making money faster and given the choice between raising money and making money. Um, and look, the market, it's unfortunate, you know, that changes the dynamic a little bit, you know, you don't make what you used to make because of this market, but the market will turn. And if you have good ideas, you'll stick around and the market will filter out. This is things I've seen in web one and web two. But I remember working for a small company that was VC funded. And I used to have to fly up to the Silicon Valley and stand in front of these VCs, like I'm in the fucking principal's office and they didn't know Dick. And I, I would just get beat to death and it was so much more about hearing them talk you know themselves <laughs> versus really it wouldn't matter what i would say because they always had an alternative opinion and it was like probably the worst experience i've ever had um and it wasn't my company i came in kind of after the fact to to help fix some things and it was fucking terrible it, it cured me of like my admiration for venture <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I think everyone's going to have to have that wake-up call at some point. I'm not from that group or that environment. I have my own venture capital group that's totally separate. And I approach things differently, but I didn't realize it was different. Like here on the podcast and in my community, we preach that every dollar invested is a vote of power. And you want to vote the right things and the right people into existence and into influence in the world. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Like if you do the right things and you make good products, you know, money's going to come. You don't yeah. have to focus on squeezing every last little penny out to get the best deal or some of these predatory unlocks that allow you to dump on everyone else. It's just not necessary. And I didn't realize until I was, you know, trying to work with other venture capital groups 
that they didn't think the same way I did. And in fact, were really just out for themselves rather than making yeah. an impact on the world, which is the most ridiculous missed opportunity ever. Like if you're controlling a hundred million dollar fund and you're not using it to better the world, you're retarded. Like yeah. straight up, like you have no brains and no vision and I have no idea how you got that job. But I think there's more people now that are starting to figure that out than ever before. So well, I remain optimistic, even if it's uh, ignorantly so. Well, I mean, I think my biggest mistake was, you know, with, with companies I tried to start or started is you fall in love with your own company. And sometimes you just stay in that relationship too. Well, across the board, personal life too. You stay in those relationships far too long um, when you know that maybe it's time to let go of that company um, because it's just not going to get there. And that, that was always the thing I really did wrong um, because I just would fall in love with what I was doing and I, and I just wouldn't be able to read the market conditions. And that doesn't happen anymore. That's something that I still struggle with as well. I mean, I've had eight startups now. Um, the only exits I've taken are the ones that, you know, fell apart. Uh, how do you know when the right time is to exit on a good note? What are some of the things you look for? So anyway, I read this book you know, by Michael Singer called the surrender experiment. And, and the whole premise of it was you can try to make decisions when you're going to exit, when you're not, it, it usually doesn't work out, you know, when, when it's your will that's driving a lot of that. And his, his deal was, I'm just going to let life, you know, generate opportunities for me. And I'm going to say yes to things. And let, let me see where I end up. And he never really had a plan. He just kind of went with it. And his life was extraordinary, continues to be. And, that's really the way I think about it these days. I, I don't need to plan for that. I need to in, be inspired and, you know, be kind and help people around me. And I don't always succeed at that because I can be a prick, but, you know, ultimately I always have kind of the best intentions and that's really what counts. Um, so it's, it's just about what you try to accomplish. And I, and I think the way I've changed is I see a lot of companies that have these single initiatives. And now I understand it's not a single initiative that gets you to where you're going. It's something at scale and something at scale is much bigger. <laughs> you know, when, when I think about the next project, you know, we're working on, it's about building an economy that's different than a project. And I don't need to think about what an exit looks like when I conclude, because I don't know when I'm going to conclude. And, and I think people do back into it that way. They, they're, the first thing they talk about is, well, I'm going to exit. And it's like, you know, I just want to build something interesting that's different. And if I'm breaking existing paradigms and models and disrupting in that way, then I'm doing something right. And that's what's so exciting about some of the Web3 stuff I'm involved in now, because that's exactly what it is. I look at every single thing I don't like, and, and I figured out how to build a business around that. That'll make me happy. <laughs> So much of that resonates with me. Um, just building an economy means you're not uh, in control of it. You're just a participant in a much right. greater thing than just you. Right. And there is no exit at that point. It's just contribution. Yeah. And I've never read that book, but that's really how my life has been. And I've always been kind of the guy who tries too hard at things. And it's just because I care. Um, and when I do that, I screw things up. But if I literally just let life kind of guide me where I need to go and tell me what to do, things work out better than uh, than anything. 
And the best example of that is, you know, all these trips that I took last year with these badges hanging behind me. Um, I didn't know why I was going there. I had other plans and I simply just told my other business partners, I'm sorry, I have to go. There's something in my gut that tells me I need to. I have zero evidence and no game plan whatsoever. Bye. And we just, I mean, I felt like a fool saying it. They thought I was crazy saying it, but I went and I ended up meeting the most amazing people, discovering the most amazing opportunities. I remember I was at Token 2049 in London. I decided just to walk in a straight line through a crowd that was walking the opposite way as they were leaving an auditorium. And I said, I'm going to just keep walking until I bump into somebody. And sure enough, I did. And it was another gentleman who was just standing still in the middle of the crowd, just waiting for me to bump into him. We saw each other from, you know, like 50 feet away and just continued walking until we met. And then we ended up talking for two hours and he's the most like-minded guy that I've ever met in this space to myself. And we immediately knew we were going to work together for years to come. And I had many experiences just like that, just by showing up and letting life just drop the right pieces in front of me and the right ideas and the right things that I was supposed to be working on and contributing. And it's amazing uh, because a surrender was the word that I had a long, long conversation with, with a, a good close friend of mine. And she was telling me, you know, if you, if you just surrender, uh, everything's going to work out for you. And I said, no, I can't give up that control. Like I finally have an opportunity. I'm in crypto. I don't want to go back to being in poverty. I need to work myself to death to not fail. And she just kept like, no, that's stupid. Just surrender and everything's going to be fine. And I didn't figure that out until recently. So hearing that story from you and the fact there's a whole book about it, um, I guess I'm finally on the right track. And I've got uh, a piece of art over here that you can't see on the wall, but it kind of exemplifies that whole story. And what it is, is uh, it's, a, it's a farm path that was kind of paved by a tractor. And there's barbed wire fence on either side of it. And at the, the far end of this you know, old dusty road is just fog. You can't see more than like 10 feet ahead. But you just know there's a path for you. You don't know where it's leading you. But to me, like that really is like a visual representation of fate and free will. Like your fate will guide you where you need to go, but your free will will allow you the choice to follow it. Or you can go the other way. But if you go through that barbed wire and off your path, you're really going to struggle a lot more. And I mean, that, all of that is, is, you know, it resonates. And, um, you know, the thing, thing about thinking you have any control over everything or anything you don't. And so why, why try to keep doing the same exercise? You know, you, you can't control the outcome. Sometimes you might get lucky, but more often than not, you don't. Um, and you know, there's a whole thing that goes with that about expectations. And when you have expectations, you know, those just become future resentments and there is just a way to live a softer life. I think, you know, building and, and educating yourself and, you know, your story about going to London. I mean, that's it, you know, like the capital is the people that you meet and you'll end up in the right place doing exactly what you were supposed to do. And you didn't have to force it. You know, it's just a nicer way to live. I think. Uh, I definitely feel a lot less stressed now than I did around this time last year when I was still trying to force it and, and, tell myself what my plans were for my life and really push ahead. <laughs> but it's a funny thing. You know, you, you've got these plans in place and goals and things like that. 
And you kind of achieve them along the way, or you you end up being pulled somewhere else and achieving something even greater. Um, well, but and it, the it, it's scary and the at the same time. You know, the, the funny part of that is, you know, the definition of what you think your life should be is laughable. You know, it's like, I don't know what my life should be. I, I think I do sometimes. And, you know, like architecting what that looks like, like, fuck, you know, that's never going to work. You know, y- your life is going to be what it is. And I'm not saying don't turn up, you know, don't do the things that could create success for you. You have to do that. But, you know, there's no meticulous plan that I can tell. You just got to got to go with it. And, you know, what you give is what you get. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to, you know, always continuously redefine my definition of success. And I think it gets more and more goofy as time goes on where like my younger self would be like, oh, man, you're fucking lame. But, you know, it really is at this point, you know, being able to wake up and enjoy what I'm doing as opposed to having a certain amount of money or a certain amount of things or a certain amount of status or whatever, you know, might've defined it when I was younger. Well, I mean, as you get older too, you know, those things that you, you, you know, I think this goes back to, you know, FTX and Sam and, you know, what happened there. I mean, that's a young guy and ego and all of those things that are important to someone that, that is a young guy, that starts to change as you get older. You know, I'm 54 and I don't have, the same insecurities I had at his age. I don't have, you know, to prove anything in the way he has to prove something or had to prove something. And, you know, it just became a snake in his case that ate its own tail. Um, You get older and you just give a shit less. Um, And it's just easier to not care about that shit. It doesn't matter. You know, and I'm not always the greatest at that. There's still things I like and I need to have in a certain way. And I mean, let's not bullshit each other. You know, it's like, sure, sure. There, there's plenty of that in my life, too, you know, and, and I'll view myself as a really simple person. Yet everyone around me will explain to me how complicated I can actually be. So That resonates a lot with me, too. In yeah. Sam's case, I met him in 2019 very, very briefly. Uh, I walked up to him, introduced myself, and he basically told me to fuck off. Uh, in a little bit nicer words than that. that but sense. I got the sense that he was a decent person, but he was surrounded by the wrong people that were really inputting the wrong kinds of things and the wrong kinds of ideas and missions in his head. So where he thought he was doing the right thing by his own moral compass the entire time and is still not sure how it all unraveled when I think he was actually set up to fail and maybe the fall guy for a much bigger conspiracy, but we'll see if uh, any of that comes to light or if it's my own goofiness. You're you're, you're a lot nicer than I, than I am. And I think it's just because of the way I grew up, you know, people don't surround you. You surround yourself with people, number one. And I know who a good person is and I know who a bad person is. And I have the choice of who I'm going to surround myself with. Um, And, you know, there's a lot that I recognize, you know, in terms of my, my younger self with someone like him. But, I mean, he continues to make the wrong decisions and he continues to not take responsibility for the decisions he made. And Always burying himself real bad. You know, if you are going to be this guy that's like, I'm going to save the business and I'm going to go, you know, bid on these companies that are distressed when really what you're fucking doing is taking the consumer funds once you get the company to line your own pocket. Well, that's not exactly continuing to make the right decision, you know, and it, it, it just seems that it's always been that with him. 
um, and continues to be. I mean, what about that six hundred million that went missing or whatever <laughs> that we can speculate it makes on? You, make, makes you wonder. Um, the one name that hasn't been brought up much in this whole situation is the former CT or the former CEO of Alameda, and that's Sam Tribuco, who was yeah. very often the brains of the operation and the mouthpiece for what was going on over there. Uh, and right before everything went south, he, he took his ball and went home and no one seems to be bringing his name into the lighter and asking him why. So, I mean, look, um, I, I it's, all think, gonna, it's all going to come out with, with, yeah, yeah all, it will, you know, I mean, the, the government moves slow, um, slowly. And, yeah. you know, the, the biggest thing I think that, that Sam did, that's probably a mistake was how close he got to a lot of the political folks you know, because those are the folks that are going to turn on you the quickest when you fuck up like this. Um, no one's going to want to be anywhere near him. And and I just think there's such a black eye, you know, to, to our industry, um, to the people that trusted him. And the fact that he just doesn't seem to care and he's not really he doesn't have any contrition at all. So I think it's going to be problematic. As one of the good guys in the space, though, how has this affected you and Wave Financial? Have you had to do more PR work or Positive. more transparency just to show like, hey, like no. this is a one off thing. That's not us. No, haven't had to do any of that. You know, we, as a matter of fact, you would think that people would be running for the hills. You know, we're not retail, you know, doing redemptions. But the people that were in business with trust us because we're transparent about what we do. And I think it's helped us more than hurt us, to be honest with you. Um, because most of the guys that are imploding, I mean, we, we just sit here going, holy shit, you know, these guys are supposed to be the smartest out there. And this is what happened. Like, this is the most basic stuff. I'm not even a finance guy. And it seems completely, you know, a, a, a lack of, um, I mean, I don't know why anyone would do what they did to just generate better returns. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me. Simple hubris, I guess. I guess, man. So for us, it hasn't changed a thing, except the market has changed, obviously. You know, we're not, you know, in a place we were last year, but it'll come back. And and I think it's not unlike when we saw companies in Web 1, you know, stick around. The ones that were doing things appropriately stuck around, and that's where the, when the real opportunity came. So when that market comes back, we'll be in a much better position. And we're looking at distressed properties right now. There's a lot of value out there and we're just looking at the world in a different way. Um, but it hasn't hurt. I mean, it hasn't hurt us in the way that you can you know, kind of categorize it. It, um, you know, the market has hurt a little bit, but we were prepared. Um, we never took balance sheet risk and we didn't use customer funds. So we know what our company looks like. Do you have any opinions or speculations on what's going on with Grayscale and Silvergate right now? I mean, here I'll answer it a different way. No, I don't have any speculations, but, you know, sadly, if, if you take a look at everything that's happened, I won't put anything past anyone at this point. Yeah, I, that's pretty much it. You know, there's, uh, yeah. so, you know, there's a, when there's smoke, there's fire. Um, well, there has been, but, that's for sure. But, you know, can you really believe crypto Twitter when they yell, hey, there's smoke? Uh, I know better than to do that at this point because they can literally create that out of nothing. So I, I, mean, uh, I hope the best for both of those institutions because we certainly don't want to see anyone fail that uh, doesn't deserve to. No, 
from the looks of it, most of the people that are failing deserved it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. Dave, you know, my partner, he came from finance. He understood, you know, what compliance means and, you know, re- being beholden to regulatory process. And everything he has done to protect the company has worked. I mean, we didn't get hit by FTX, but we had money there. We just got it back before anything happened because where there was smoke and it wasn't Twitter smoke, you know, and I think he made the conservative choice um, and didn't go for the money at the time. He went for protecting the assets and protecting the company. And I think that's that's the difference um, in terms of having some sort of moral compass. Um, he, could, he could have went for the money and we'd be in a very different position. We would have hurt ourselves. So. We're fortunate because we haven't been hit by anything, and I hope you know we don't get hit in the future. But it's possible. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the wisest words we were ever left with on a podcast episode is, "If you protect your downside, there will always be upside." We're yeah. still so early in this industry, and there's so many amazing things happening and still yet to happen in the future. But as long as you just manage your greed, stay in the game, uh, and make sure that you're not getting wiped out. Uh, you're going to make a lot of money in this industry. Just uh, yeah, and you know, look, that's a, take any extra risk. And that's even if we're still using like money as the barometer. You know, right. uh, look, money money is the barometer because if you if you make enough, then you can do great things to change the world. To your point of how you started this podcast out, um, you know, it, it's hard to do the things you want to do um, if you haven't made the money. Um, so I think that's where the real change happens. And, and that comes down to your core beliefs and core instincts. And if you do ultimately want to help people, it's nice to make the money to do so. And I, I think there's probably thousands of people listening right now thinking to themselves how much they resonate with this conversation. They think less is a badass, which they should. Yeah. If they're not, what's wrong with you? How about and, that? As you mentioned, it. you know, you have a VC fund over there at Wave. What are, yeah. What's the investment thesis there? What are you looking for? to invest in? What are some of the green flags that make you cut a check? And what are some of the red flags that make you throw the deck in the trash? You know, Dave's history is venture. And, and we have this guy, John Caldwell, who runs the funds. And, and John didn't come from a traditional venture background. John, you know, just instinctually knew what was happening. And I, I equate the venture investing to signing Nirvana. You know, when Nirvana was on Sub Pop, and I don't know how old you are, but I remember those days, you know, it, before they got to Geffen with Nevermind, everyone knew this was going to be a hit because of the community that loved to listen to music. And, you know, with, with venture that we looked at and companies we looked at, we had to understand the ecosystem we were building in. Someone had to have the understanding and also be part of the community. That's the way, you know, we approached it. Um, so there was always multiple reasons to do so. And then we would do diligence. Um so, you know, you, you go through the process and, and hopefully, you know, you end up making wise decisions and then the market tanks and everyone kind of goes down, you know, with where you've invested. But that's looking at it short term. Everything we do is, is long term. So when people are like, oh, you know, the nav on your NFT fund is way down, it's like, who gives a fuck? We made, you know, investments that we believe in for the long term. We see where the value lies and I'm not going to like, I mean, you want to talk about the nav every day, you know, I'm not you know, going to look at it that way um, because I don't think that's a winning approach. Um, 
you know, when, when you're investing in people, because that's really what you're doing. And it comes down to that thing about team and motivation and, you know, how much have they accomplished? Um, so it's, it's just all the basic tenets of what venture investing always is, you know? Yeah. Not catering to the people asking if the devs can do something about price. Definitely <laughs> a critical thing. That's um, right. What are some of the trends that you think are going to unfold in 2023 and where's the value going to be flowing? Is it layer ones? Is it DeFi? Well, is it something else? So what do you really have your eye on? Dave and I are really kind of different. Dave loves DeFi and real fine. You know, he comes from finance, so it makes sense. And, and that's where he, he really takes it. But I love immersion in the metaverse and AI. And, you know, I've been working on this Web3 studio for a good while. And what's exciting about it is when we talk about building an economy, um, you know, the ability to understand in a decentralized world how these things can work together um, and what's different about them. And, and it's a much bigger challenge to take elements of film and television and gaming and, you know, social media. And how, do, how does this all tie together in this Web3 world and how does it leverage Web2? You know, the traditional guys in Web2 that have huge audience and speed and, you know, Web3 is more about monetization and privacy and how do you put it all together? And that that's the way I've been thinking about, you know, what I'm building. Um, and it's exciting because, you know, in Web2, traditionally, people would throw money at something or throw an influencer at something to gain visibility or build something. And it, it just, that wasn't as exciting. Like here, you know, you can actually just be forward thinking and create opportunity around that. You don't need to throw money at it. And, and that's been the greatest lesson over the last handful of years is if I can learn more and know more and be connected deeper and really believe it, you know, not bullshit it and understand where it's going, then that's an exciting opportunity. And, and, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that I bring music into the conversation a lot. Of course, that's my history, but you know, it doesn't matter that it was music because at the end of the day, it was models, business models, not the kind of models you're thinking about. Um, it oh, was, uh, you know, it was building something and having the past experiences of what didn't work and not doing the same thing in this world. And that's what makes it really, really exciting because you can just reinvent what this whole world looks like right now. And I think that's the most exciting thing of all is we're reinventing the world. Um, yeah. In my opinion, a much better image is going to take place than what we've got today. So I don't know if it's going to be unveiled in 23 or 24, 25, when Web3 will become the standard. But um, I'm excited to see that happen. And, and, and for excited me, to be on the ground floor. It doesn't even have to become the standard. You know, what it is is something that can coexist and, and transition from Web2. And, and, you know, what I'm excited about is Apple. You know, when their immersive headsets come, um, how's that going to change everything? Because immersion and, you know, basic kind of Web2 and, and how it applies to the metaverse is, is going to be really fascinating, um, especially if there's a, an ability to have some of the immersive stuff scale. And the AI stuff is, I mean, you can see it. Anyone puts AI you know, in their name and all of a sudden they're raising money. It's kind of like that whole stupid blockchain iced tea thing that happened. Um, but the underlying actual technology is fascinating. And, and I think it's going to accelerate everything we're working on and, and digital currency will be a big part of it. 
Yeah, well said. Uh, Les, before we let you go, one final question. You know, who's one person that you admire in this crypto space that really motivates you to keep doing what you're doing, aside from your co-founder that you've mentioned already? Who's someone that we should check out? I mentioned Charles, too, you know, already, who who motivates me. And he's on my mind because, you know, every so often I'll have a question that I just can't wrap my head around. And like today, you know, I, I gave him a call and I said, look, I want to talk about Haskell. Explain it to me. You know, and he does it in a way that I can understand. So, you know, but but I think there's a lot of people. It's not just him, obviously, that, you know, um, had these really innovative ideas and and kind of went about it the right way and and created these these interesting um, successes. Um, But, you know, let's just leave it with Charles for now, because I can't think of another one off the top of my head. Fair enough. Charles Hoskinson, if you don't know who he is, you better get acquainted. Uh, and you'll thank yourself for all the time spent watching his TED Talks on YouTube, podcasts yeah. that he's done. Uh, quite the lively character, to say the least. Uh, Les, you're quite the lively character yourself. Can't wait to have you back here for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But in the meantime, where can we follow you on Twitter for more of your thoughts and ramblings? You know, it, it, it's so funny. I was using the Instagram thing, and and um, I was using, you know, social media and um I think my girlfriend said something like, what the fuck are you doing on Instagram? You're 54. And I like deactivated it. I am on Twitter though. So (laughs) I guess it's under my name or less.eth or something. All right. Well, if if Les's Twitter isn't good enough, just listen to this podcast on repeat or send him uh, an email over at Wave Financial or something. Or write to us and say, hey, we need Les back on more often. I have Twitter. All kidding aside, I have Twitter for sure. Okay. Very good. Well, we'll link it in the show notes below. Thanks again so much for spending the last hour with us. It's been a great conversation. It's been awesome to meet you. And thank you for everything that you're building at Wave Financial and your Web3 studio. Um, Good to be part of the same ecosystem. I appreciate it. I see other builders on the other side are uh, just amazing. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sure. And we'll be back uh, very soon in the next couple of days with another great guest here at the Crypto 101 Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.